Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Kasperson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a live recording here at Money 2020 of Humans of Fintech. This is the podcast where I share the inspiring insights of leaders who are really building and working to create real equity in financial systems through fintech. So I am so excited to be here. I am your host, Nicole Kasperson. I am the founder and the creator of the What the Fintech newsletter. So I am the human that is behind the newsletter that hits your inboxes every Tuesday and Thursday. Today, we're going to talk about the ways that fintech is building momentum for financial organizations to bridge the digital gender gap and drive economic equity. But fintech has a lot of work to do. 742 million women worldwide are still excluded from the global economy. And to tackle the real problems in financial services, fintech must include more diverse perspectives than finance or tech has ever recruited. But for fintech to also be truly inclusive, we need to diversify who has access to capital. I'm excited to get into this conversation. With me is Shavada Sorora, founder and CEO of Tala, and Mary Ellen Iskaterian, the president and CEO of Women's World Banking. So I know we're wearing headphones, but please give them a massive round of applause for being here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so to kick things off, I want to talk about the way that financial inclusion, everyone here should know that it is ethically and morally the right thing to do, but research has shown time and time and again that is also good for business. So I want to give each of you a moment to share your business case for financial, global financial inclusion. Marilyn, I want to start with you because you recently released a book where you talk about the, that there's a, I think it's 700 billion reasons why we should make a case for global financial inclusion. So will you elaborate on that for us? <laughs> that was a great lead-in. Thanks a lot, Nicole. Yeah, there, you know, Oliver Wyman did some really fascinating research a few years ago that showed that there's a $700 billion annual revenue opportunity that's being left on the table. And actually, it's not even to say that all those 742 million women are included. No, it's not even saying that. It's just saying if you served women with financial services at the same level that men are currently being served at. So you're not even looking at all of the things that men could additionally be served with. If you just had gender parity between banking, insurance, asset management, there would be $700 billion of additional revenue that the financial service industry could have access to, which is we're going into a recession and really crazy times. I am just cannot fathom why this isn't an opportunity that we're not just grabbing onto with both hands. Mm. And to put that $700 billion into context, it is nearly double the size of Elon Musk's net worth. <laughs> I like to throw that out there because that is pretty alarming. Uh, this should be one of the only things we are discussing. Shivani, from, from your seat, what is your case for global financial inclusion at Tala? I always think of it as there's about two and a half billion individuals around the world that are currently lacking access to the financial system. And I really mean that as like lacking access to the right financial products that can make them true consumers. What we also know is that there's a $2.3 trillion credit gap in emerging markets alone. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, if you actually provide people with the right kind of products and you supply them with purchasing power and liquidity, they are going to enter the financial marketplace. 
And so we've seen that directly from our work um, in terms of serving small business owners and consumers. But I mean, I think it makes, again, business sense for private companies, financial institutions, governments, et cetera, to really think of this as we are injecting purchasing power into these economies, which will lead to an increase in GDP. Precisely. And so I think when it comes to understanding that global financial inclusion is good for both business and ethics and the world, I think a lot of fintech companies enter this space with this mission, this massive desire to want to build that, to be very mission-driven. But somewhere along the way, maybe they lose track of that. Maybe it's the pressure to scale. What are some of the measures that you think need to be put in place so that there's true longevity in that mission going through the life cycle of a fintech company all the way from founding date, pre-seed, all the way to maybe an IPO one day? And I'm kind of curious. I think we've, you know, we really believe in the fact that right, financial inclusion, in my opinion, isn't just about, again, you know, you're there for a period of time, you provide transactional value, it's fundamentally we need to be moving the needle on systemic change. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely means, again, rethinking how our financial system works. And so for me, if I think about you know, us as a mission-driven company working in technology and financial systems, it has really been around saying, how do we actually create legitimacy and proof that this customer is credit worthy? So that's us acting as the first lender, but then ultimately being able to show that this customer can ladder into additional products and that financial agency and confidence. And again, purchasing power does increase over time. So measuring that impact as well. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the whole systemic piece because at the risk of getting a little wonky on you a few years ago, well, actually, let's let's start like maybe a decade ago when the term financial inclusion really became much more, you know, the term of art. We weren't really talking about microfinance so much more. We were talking about a much broader set of products and services. You know, the IMF was, you know, don't bother us. We don't really care about growth. We don't really care about bringing more people into the financial system. And then it was only really about two or three years ago that they finally started to do some really important research on the macro impacts of bringing more people into the financial system and, frankly, the inability to change anything around income inequality if you weren't reaching out to the most excluded people. Mm -hmm. And then decided and made a you know, really big deal about it that financial inclusion was a macro-critical factor. And if you're going to make change in your macro economy, they started making some very important regulations and, and uh, recommendations to governments specifically around digital financial services. So it's so important to that macro economy. And then I love what you said about the confidence because at the end of the day, you know, I run an organization called Women's World Banking. We're very focused on, on women. But at the end of the day, what that impact of having access to, and more importantly, control over financial resources means for that individual woman and her family and her life She's got more decision power in her household. She's probably less um, vulnerable to domestic violence. She's much more likely to vote and maybe even stand for office. There are all sorts of sort of dynamics and power changes and yeah. relational changes that are brought about by literally nothing more than having a safe place to save, 
a way to transact and save money, um, mm -hmm. uh, send money reasonably, affordably, the ability to borrow at non-usorious, crazy interest rates, and then insurance that can protect everything that you've built. I would add one thing, actually, that is, as we think about, again, the companies in the space and the accountability around, again, impact, in addition to, again, moving the needle on, you know, the scale at which we can solve this problem, I think it does go back to how we make our revenue. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and how we ensure, again, that we're protecting the consumer, to Mary Ellen's point, around holistic financial services. But ultimately, I think there has to be that thing of, okay, the way that you generate revenue cannot be extracting from this customer. Mm. And there are, I think, right ways and wrong ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm happy to share an example of how we do yeah. it in the credit landscape, which is we don't take anything up front. We really say it's, it's really similar to, you know, instead of buy now, pay later, it's like credit, it's pay as you go credit. Mm -hmm. So you pay for what you need and you only pay at the end of the term. Mm -hmm. And you choose what terms, what rates, what pricing actually matches your income. And we guide you along that way. But it's, again, ensuring that there are other products beyond credit that the customer can engage with. But it's also thinking, I think, more sustainably about our own business model and saying we shouldn't grow to an extent that we eventually can't serve the customer anymore. And I think that's what I've seen so much in development is that we come out with these great products but then we ourselves cannot sustain ourselves. Mm. And so then your customer, you know, again, got used to something that they now can't access anymore. There's this like disconnect when we think about the capital providers, right? And trying to get capital into the, the hands of, of, of more women and diverse groups. There's this disconnect though, between thinking that the return on investment on scale and, and wanting to grow the business as fast as possible is somehow separate from inclusion. I want to dive into to all of the, the reasons why and, and how we can get more access into or capital into women's hands, but like, what is that disconnect? How do we help the capital providers actually understand that this is also good for them to scale their business? Well, Nicole knows this is like a real pet peeve of mine, I guess. Pet peeve of mine. Because I've been so impressed with the fintech leaders and founders that I've met over the, the last five or six years. It's it's remarkable how many of them seem to have, in, at some point in their, their journey, were really motivated by some degree of inclusion. They went into this business because they wanted people who did not currently have access to a product, a service, or something that was done more affordably they wanted to expand that and then you know that's what they'll raise seed capital on that's what they'll maybe raise series a maybe maybe series b but then somewhere when they get to a point where they're raising money that they've really got to scale the folks who are funding them in that that part of their journey almost force them into an abandonment of that inclusion message and, right. I, and I think We've been an impact investor now for 12 years. Much more recently, though, I'd say it's really been more the last three years that we've been actively inv investing in, in fintechs. And, and I've been really very heartened in some of the, the later stage, you know, Series B, early C 
rounds that we've done, how many, when we've led the round, how many investors have come along with us with the same sort of gender goals that mm-hmm. we have. We are you know, really clear. When you have somebody named Women's World Banking investing and you're on your the cap table, you know what we're about and you know what, you know what we want to see. And so I've been really heartened by the number of investors that recognize that, you know, yes, diversity is great, but there's this huge untapped market base that we could be going after, we could be scaling. Yes, it may take slightly longer, right. but I'd, I, I'm, I'm excited that there are, seem to be capital providers who are willing to, to mm-hmm. take that slightly longer route to scale so that the company doesn't have to abandon that original inclusion strategy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's about really ensuring that the capital providers that you work with, and if you are a capital provider, thinking more of a long path mentality as opposed to a short-term thinking mentality as humans in this chaotic world that we live in where everything is instant, instant, instant. Um, we tend to apply short-term thinking to everything, right? We want to scale fast. We want to grow fast. We want to impress fast. But if you can just wait a little and think about that long path mentality, how are you being a good ancestor almost is more of the, the mindset then how do I just scale super fast? Because that is how you create real longevity for your company, for the companies you invest in. And that's just something that I wholeheartedly believe in. But how do you navigate kind of dealing and as, the, as on the fintech founder side, making sure that you're making that right relationship with the capital provider? It starts from the beginning. I mean, I, and I would actually say, I mean, we're now operating across four different countries. You know, in Mexico, Kenya, Philippines, India. And so these are massive markets. We've now deployed three and a half billion dollars across these markets in terms of access to credit for our customers over the last seven years. And we have achieved some scale. It's a drop in the bucket in in terms of, you know, the two and a half billion people that still need access. But I do think in the beginning, it was kind of marrying those two objectives of saying, we are going to scale because this is a massive global problem and we have to think of how we use data and technology with that, but then also really fundamentally ensuring that the capital providers we brought to, brought to the table, even VCs like Google Ventures, mm-hmm. PayPal, lowercase capital, these are again, you know, go from early stage all the way to late stage, but they said things to me you know, like, I can't wait until we go visit our customers. And it was that starting point, I think, around instead of a I or what we will earn, it's a we as a partnership will actually earn together and, you know, go create. It's just really about being intentional. Really with the way that our culture is shifting, it's one thing to have good intent, but it is a whole other thing to have impact and to, to take that good intent and ha- make sure it has longevity and to create real impact with the company or, or whatever investments that you're making. And I think that's the mindset that whether you're in your seat, your seat, or any of your seats that, that is meant to have. So now how do we go and expand that mindset to something more than just microcredit? Now, Mary Ellen, I wanna to go to you. Women's World Banking had a massive focus on microfinance early on, and now you're kind of shifting, right, to expand that conversation um, outside of that. Talk to me about what other areas in the, the landscape that you think deserve more paying attention to by our industry. Yeah, so really when M-Pesa burst onto the scene, I guess, what is it now, 12, 13 years ago, 
the degree to which that shifted the game can't even be underestimated. It was just, or overestimated. It was just an enormous land, land shift. And it, what it said was that, you know, just the mere provision of very small loans at very, very high interest rates, you know, was the first demonstration that poor people could be banked and mm-hmm. that they could reliably pay. In fact, as we know, women were very good repayers of microfinance, but it just wasn't enough. And that very poor people need the same sort of access, the same sort of array of products that you and I do to manage what are arguably even more complicated financial lives than you and I have because they are really scrambling to use every resource that they, they possibly can. And what I, I really love about fintech and see, and, and I didn't know that was the title of our session, but I really do think that financial inclusion and fintech are just so well aligned. The things that have kept very poor people and very poor women in particular out of the system are these really old legacy problems mm-hmm. um, that right. are able to be leapfrogged by the access to data that um, fintechs can provide, the ability to kind of skip over these these middlemen or these these regulatory barriers that have often stood in the way of the of the legacy providers. You know, what, what Shifani was, was talking about collateral for the, and I know you asked not to talk about, about credit, but collateral in most of the emerging markets, there's nothing accepted as collateral other than real estate or land. Right. The vast majority of poor people don't own those things, but women absolutely don't own them. In far too many countries, women are still not allowed to inherit in their own names. They can't make decisions about the disposal of property in their own names. And so the ability to shape a loan according to the cash flows or the the way a company is earning money rather than relying on collateral as a way to collect on a loan is just mind-blowing and can totally you know, reshape the game. The same is going with with insurance. You know, you're seeing Mm -hmm. digital insurance providers now that are doing insurance almost like a cell phone Mm top-up, that as your insurance runs out one month, you top it up for the the next month. So you're you're seeing real creativity that's being brought to bear to the whole gamut of financial services. And Shivani, from your seat, Tala is known for providing microcredit. The company has been able to underwrite $3.4 billion dollars so how is Tala thinking of expanding your services outside of just microcredit? We went back to understanding our customer. And, you know, again, the fact that there is this ability for us to really holistically understand it using alternative data now, in some ways we can't turn our heads away from that. Mm-hmm. It's really now we have the ability to understand their capacity. We have their, the ability to understand their credit worthiness through our relationship with them, but now it's really understanding, okay, how can we better protect their money? Mm-hmm. How can we help them grow that money? And then how can we help them use it? And COVID really shined a light on that problem in particular in terms of our customers couldn't even access the capital that was being given to them. And so we really said, okay, we need to go beyond credit immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing was our customers actually already thought of us as a bank. They already thought they had an account. Yeah. But it wasn't actually giving them the benefits they needed. And so we now are moving to a place of really focusing on what's that holistic set of products beyond credit, similar to what you and I have access to. And so we've started that journey in the Philippines, and we'll take that to our other three markets. Nice. And, you know, the Philippines is, I believe it's one of the top emerging markets 
I think just right behind like Vietnam and, and Latam and but is there anything, any learnings that you're able to share from just starting to tap into that market and expanding the, the product more? I think two things that I can share. Um, one, it always starts with customer trust. And so if we, again, go back to this individual customer that is underestimated by the financial system, they're operating in cash. Mm-hmm. 85% of customers in emerging markets are operating in cash. And so we're not a challenger bank or a neo bank that is trying to get them to move from one place to another. We're literally fighting with cash under a mattress mm-hmm. and trying to bring that into the system. And so the first thing I would say is it starts with what's the value you provide to the customer? How do you get them to trust you as opposed to this, again, top-down mentality of we should trust them? And so I think that's the first learning we've had, which is how do you pull money in? And it starts with trust. The second thing I would say is that similar to us, um, like any consumer product company, the more value you provide, the stickier that relationship becomes. Mm -hmm. And so then it's on us to start to, again, create those more customized experiences and really treat them as consumers. And so what are the offers? What are the additional benefits by keeping your money in this account? And that's, I think, the really exciting part of what we've seen in terms of our results already are just showing us that you can, again, create a great business model. And so we're lengthening our LTVs with the same customer as a result of going deeper. I want to dig into trust a little bit. I I love that you brought that up because I think it's something that is a little bit easier said than done. And in today's current culture, especially as more Gen Zers enter enter the space and uh, continue to build wealth, you know, that generation and even millennials or younger, younger millennials really have to align with a company's values and trust to want to actually partake in their product or services, let alone recommend it to someone else. So I guess what are your tips for really establishing that trust? Because like I said, easier said than done. And I think Marilyn, maybe from your seat though, what type of things are maybe you hearing that create that friction of a lack of trust, especially from women who have been or people who have been just historically excluded from the financial system? You know, is it the predatory loans? Is it what is it that creates a lack of trust and how do you gain it back? If I've heard it once, I've heard it literally, you know, a thousand times, women saying, "Mm, you know, that bank isn't for me. Interesting. They just don't see it as being, They don't get them. Yeah, it it doesn't understand, they they don't understand me. So that's why I'm going to turn your question around a little bit because I think one of the things that's been really successful is, like, don't, force people to go too far out of their comfort zone. So we love to use things that people are already doing and then maybe adapt it to a digital or adapt it to a different product. Right now, one of the most successful ways that we are bringing rural women in a couple of countries, but probably most effectively in Indonesia, is it's a long-standing custom when a, a woman gets pregnant, she will save every month with her midwife towards the delivery and the immediate um, postnatal care of her baby. And so we digitized all of that. And then we made the midwife the sort of banking agent in her village. So she had an additional source of revenue coming in, you know, in addition to being a midwife. And it's been amazingly sticky. The women have continued to save and have continued to engage with the, you know, the digital financial service provider that we're working with, you know, long after the baby was born. And 
and so on. So I think making sure you meet customers where they are mm-hmm. and you, you show that you are for them, you are engaged in their life, you do understand what they do and don't want, what they do and don't have, and, and then a, you you do the adapting, like like uh, right. Shivani was saying. Right. Well, and then Shivani, you sit in an interesting seat as well because you're, you know, you're the fintech company coming in and saying, hey, like, I know that you have, you customer, hello customer, you have this history of distrust in a financial system that hasn't treated you right. How do you then say, I'm a company that you can trust? I think a lot of it also just has to do even leadership. Like you sitting in your seat is a massive reflection of, hey, this is, you know, I'm someone that can understand you, right? As a, as a woman founder, CEO. Um, but what are some other things? Like, do you put yourself out there personally? What do you do to establish that trust instead of just being like, hi, I'm a fintech company, use my product? <laughs> well, one, I do think there is something to be said for being proximate to understanding the problem itself. Mm-hmm. It does start with me. I, I, you know, before starting Tala, I interviewed a little over 3,500 individuals in nine different countries across West Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and India. And so really understood this customer, understood their daily life, walked in their shoes with them, you know, started lending to them myself. And so that's the first piece is, you know, you, it starts with you. I think from there, it's how do you build that culture so that the, uh, the other people on your team will have that same values and ethos um, and DNA. But then I think to your point on how does the customer then trust us, I think it again starts with this idea that we approve almost everyone that comes through our doors except for fraudsters. And so it's how do you again build the (laughs) supply chain and the infrastructure of your product so that you are creating an ecosystem that is again starting with a place of saying we trust you And now we want you to gain value. And then over time, we will continue trusting you. And I believe trust is really a feedback loop. Mm. But somebody has to start to create it. Right. Well, and and that has started with you and your leadership. And I really love that you share that example of you interviewed people. You got to know them. You got to understand. And so that they can stop thinking in their heads, no, I don't want to work with that company or that bank because they don't get me. And that is huge. Like, I think that that value is something that is massively underestimated, that potential to do that. I think something else I want to talk about is the fact that the mobile internet is amazing. We love it. We've done a great job, FinTech, at creating access. However, when we talk about global financial inclusion, a stat to consider is that Women are now 16% less likely than men to use the mobile internet, which equates to 264 million fewer women than men using the mobile internet. And this happens largely internationally. So how, how do we combat that factor when our iPhones are the, the key to this inclusion? So I, I think it goes back into its business model as well as product delivery and again, mission, but it's rethinking, how do you acquire this customer? How do you actually think about the fact that if less women have access or aren't using the internet as much, how do we draw them in? And so we take a community approach to how we think about referrals. So mm-hmm. word of mouth is our largest source of acquisition. And so it's, it's again, wow. if it works for somebody, 
and it's a woman, they will tell 10 other women in their community. Because again, it's just about, they're actually proud of it. They're saying, right. I got value, I want to show it to you. And that's also really good business for us, right? Yeah. We're not paying for that. And so I think it's really kind of marrying these two things together. I think the other thing is, again, when it comes to technology, it's do we need every member of a household to have access to the internet through their phone? I mean, do we need multiple devices? Or can we start to think about multiple logins per mm -hmm. um, household? And I think that's the other piece of what excites me in emerging markets and data is this idea of how we construct identity. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't need to use the kind of traditional methods for this. We can start to use more behavior um, and relationship. Love that. Yeah, no, love that. Mm -hmm. Love that. It also does go back to the, the trust point that you were making before. I think probably one of the most amazing statistics I heard of in the last month was from um, Matt Granrid, who's the, um, the director general of the GSMA. He said that there are 3.2 billion people in the world who have access to the internet, mobile or otherwise, mm -hmm. that don't use it, that don't see it as relevant for their lives. And, and I kind of see that as like, that's the next step for financial inclusion. So I think this, this idea that we were talking about before, how do you make it relevant? How do you make this product, this service, this gateway that we know is so important to changing people's lives, to building, you know, a fully functioning economy. How do we make them feel like that's relevant to them? And, mm -hmm. and they're very hopeful. The GSMA is really very hopeful. The financial inclusion is going to be a part of the way to do that. But, um, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale. This makes me think a lot of, of empathy. You know, typically when we want to build solutions, especially as fintech or startup founders or, or investors, we want to all get into a room and with our team and have a bunch of sticky notes and, you know, say, yes, we're going to get together, we're going to build a product and we're going to change the world. But really, what you should be doing is getting in a room with your team and talking about empathy and talking about transgenerational empathy. And how do you think about what has happened in the past, right? Like the way that you think about microfinance or microcredit and how it once gave this amazing inclusion and access. But how are we going, we understand that and it has its purpose, then how are we going to expand that into the next, right, the future with, with empathy? And so that's kind of what I think is the, the overarching theme of what we've been talking about today. And so I want to talk about consumer protection and education and how you are both kind of tackling that in the theme of empathy, because like I said before, FinTech has done a great job of access, but now I think it's on us and we should have the onus to make sure that we are putting out content or tools or services out there to make sure that our consumers are educated now that we're providing all this access. So what are your best practices around that? We never launch a product that doesn't have digital and financial capability built into the way we sell it, the way we market it. We make sure there are ambassadors and usually peer ambassadors. You know, you're much more likely to learn something from somebody who looks and sounds and has life experience more like, like yours. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of just kind of comes with the territory of any product that we we engage with. We know that women are really, really sensitive around data privacy issues. The BIS actually published a, a piece a couple of months ago saying that women were, would actually be much more willing to buy a more expensive financial product mm -hmm. if they knew that their data was going to be, be protected. So 
building in consumer protection can be worthwhile. You can be remunerated for it if you can convince your customer that you are taking their data privacy concerns seriously. I just keep going back to business model, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, if it's engraved in your business model. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you think about the way that we are on our credit product, right, we're not taking anything up front. And so it's in our best interest to ensure that the customer understands what they're signing up for. And again, that we support them along the way, because otherwise money's not going to come back to us. So I think that's just one intentional way to do it. I think, again, if you are measuring your impact, you will know very quickly whether or not you have to add in additional services as well. And then the last thing I can say is that, again, we're charting new territory here using technology. And so we are proponents of regulation because we've also seen that bad actors have to leave as a result. Mm -hmm. And so that's another way I think that um, you can stay on track. Love it. This has been an amazing conversation, and I'm going to wrap it up with the final question I always ask on my guests on my podcast, and that is, if we need to be the change that we wish to see in the world, what change do you wish to see in the world, and how will you embody it? For me, I mean, as you can tell, I believe really strongly in trust, and that's our founding value at Tala is radical trust, and I think it, it means really being open and curious to all points of view. And if we all start with that, I think we'll see a huge change. Love it. Marilyn, close yeah. us out. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, just this whole idea of bringing more capital to bear to make fintech really um, live up to the potential that it has to bring so many more people into the economy and as a result, really grow the economy. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well said. Thank you so much for joining me on this live Money 2020 recording of Humans of Fintech. Give them a round of applause. And I do also want to encourage each and every one of you that are here to sign up for my podcast. It is called Humans of Fintech. You can get uh, another listen to this amazing conversation. Share it with your team. Share it with your colleagues and your friends. And also, I want to encourage each and every one of you to be the change that you wish to see in fintech in the world. Because sitting in your seat, you are doing important work. And thank you for for your mission. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too. 